Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another interesting conversation with an accomplished Georgia music teacher today that I'm really looking forward to. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage all of you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take the time to leave a review, I would really appreciate that. And now without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Judith Siegel. Hello, Judith. Good morning. Good morning. Let's get started with just some background information. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. In Virginia, um, I was a charter member of Virginia Music Teaching Association, <clears throat> living in Richmond. <clears throat> and from there, when my husband retired, we moved to Florida. And then from Florida, I came to Georgia after he died. So, how I got started, I was the first teacher, and years ago, certification was done in the states, not nationally. I was the first teacher in the state of Virginia to become certified. And that was because I had to do it. I just had to do it. Then when I moved to Florida, I did it again in Florida. Then it all became national, so I had to make sure that everything was covered nationally. So I am nationally certified six different ways. Tell me about how you got started in music. What what were the beginnings of Judith Siegel in music? Since I was only seven years old, and I heard a piano downstairs, and I said, I've got a piano, my piano. My mother said, no, you have to share it with your brother, <laughs> which I did for about two years, and then he went on to the clarinet. So that was my beginning. I can hear my mother now say, can't you get away from that piano and go read a book? <laughs> Great. At some point, you decided to become a professional musician, and you got, you know, I read your biography, you got numerous degrees in music, including, I believe, two doctorates. Can you walk yes. us through that? Sure. Well, actually, when I was growing up, my parents did not want me to stay in music. They wanted daughter that had liberal arts, and I said, that's not me. Once I met my husband, he said, you do whatever you want to do. So that's when I went back to school and started working on degrees. I think one of the highlights of it was when I went to New York to study with Dr. Pace. That was the time where he was selecting one person from each state to come study with him to learn how to teach group piano. I was the one from Virginia. It was an exciting time. It really was. So I, I had two doctorates. One is in piano uh, performance and the other is in music theory. So I think theory is so important. What I didn't have in those days was technique. And it wasn't until many years later when I met my friend Alexander Pestana that he really got me staunch into technique. So now I teach the Russian technical regimen, as he did. And it all goes right back to Lechitsky, which is their, their lineage, it goes from Lechitsky to present. 
Um, so you you talk about Lishatitsky, which is interesting because I was reading in your bio that you discovered a long lost concerto of his. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How was that discovery made? In 1972, my husband and I and, and our children took a trip to Austria. And as an accident of fate, I don't believe in accidents, I took with me the book, Less Sissy as I Knew Him by Ethel Newton. I don't know why, but I took it with me. After we were in Vienna for a while, we then traveled on all the road and went to Salzburg. And there I saw a sign that said Leschetizkystrasse. To make a very long story short, I found out that his granddaughter was alive and still living in his villa. We arranged to meet her, and we spent three days there, and she kept telling me all, all about her grandfather, because I knew all about him again. And she also was a concert pianist recently retired. And on the third day when we were getting ready to leave Bonisha, she comes up with his bag, a purple plastic bag, and in it she pulls out a concerto, his only concerto. And she said, take his, remember, we couldn't really talk a lot. She's talking German in her own dialect, and I'm trying to get it from what I do from Yiddish. That was, and, and in music, we could talk in music because we both did that. So she asked me to take it back to the United States, have it published and performed in the name of her grandfather, and I spent the next 30 years of my life doing that. That's the short story. I wrote a very large article in MCNA's Music in the Journal, and it's called My Mission from Ischel. And right now, 50 years later, I'm finishing the book called Mission from Ischel. Wow. <laughs> Is there an anticipated publication date for the book? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I'm, Remember, years ago, I typed on a typewriter. Now I'm transferring it all to a computer so I can send it off. <laughs> Great. We'll have to be on the lookout for that. Thank you for that. Now, you know, a lot of what I've learned from you is on the Georgia Music Teachers Association website, because there is a brief article about you as a 50-year member. So let's talk a little bit about your time and not just GMTA, but also MTNA. It sounds like you have been heavily involved with MTNA in various states throughout your career. In Virginia, I was not only a charter member of the state and an officer in the state, but I was president in Richmond for two years. Then when we moved to Florida, I ended up being president of that group in, in Florida for about five years. Then when I came here, again, they made me president. I really stopped doing that. So I've always been involved with MTNA since, since the early days. Why do you think it's important for a musical professional to become involved with MTNA? Well, it's the biggest and the best there is of the association. I also am a firm believer in the Music League Foundation. Joanne Howard-Tunian was one of my teachers, and she started the Music League Foundation in Virginia and then took it over and became a national, now an international thing. And I'm still a music league teacher. I always have at least one student that is on, on the link program. Music League Association, is that what you said? Music League Foundation. Ah, Music League Foundation. Great. Thank you for that. 
Do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share with us? Oh, yeah. Can it be more than one? Yes, absolutely. I guess one of the most important was Florence Robinson. Florence was a concert pianist. I studied with her at the artist level for 12 years before we moved to Maryland. And then she introduced me to her teacher, Madame Krauss, who became also a teacher of me. And one of the exciting times I remember, we went to a um, convention at the University of Maryland. And Florence had me with her. And Madame Krauss was playing in the middle of the concert. She got up and walked off the stage. And she said, the B-flat is busted. And everyone in the audience was appalled because she got up and walked off the stage. You know, I don't know if you know how she used to swish on and off the stage. But in her cap of the gale, she was exquisite. And we all, all sat there and waited like 20 minutes before music technician Simon came in and fixed the B-flat. And Madame Krauss came right back on and said it's the concert. So that was, that was an exciting, exciting thing that happened. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing that story with us. In the middle of this, this whole convention, Madame Krauss had just done the world premiere of the Grazer Fantasy, Schubert's Grazer Fantasy. And I was just haunted by it. It's so beautiful. So I asked her, where could I get the music? And... She said, only one place at Dublinger's in Vienna. Well, that was about a month before we were going to Vienna. So when we got there, we went to Dublinger House, which is a music publishing house. They had seven copies of it. I bought all seven copies and brought it back to the United States and gave it as gifts to some of my friends. And we had a United States premiere uh, at the University of Richmond with my friend, my teacher Florence Robertson playing the Grotto Fantasy. And my other friend, Margie Underhill, was um, a choreographer, and she had a, a dance troupe, and she had chore choreographed it. And the girls were dancing around Florida as she played it. And it, was, it was really beautiful, it really was. But I love that piece. Now it's, now it's available in the United States. Actually, Henley has published it, so that's wonderful. <laughs> Why are you a musician and teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? Because I must. It's that simple. Because I must. There were never any questions what, what I really wanted to do. So then what are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? Getting the concerto authenticated as being in Lechitis hands. That was a big deal. We had to go through the Library of Congress in Washington. And eventually, let's see, Donald Levitt was then chief of the music division of the Library of Congress. And we we he they had they had to find another manuscript of statistics and have an expert say that these were the same. Because you see, all the all the history books say that Souvenir de Grafenberg was opus, opus nine. Concerto Sisonica is opus nine. And it eventually was authenticated and then I got the, the um, copyright for it. And we had a huge world premiere and we had it in Virginia Beach. at the Virginia Beach Symphony 
Walter Neer is a dear friend of mine. He, he was conducting. And I, I brought Ilsa over from Austria for the world premiere. And together, I went up on the stage with her and I presented the manuscript back to her as the mission completed. And together, we presented the manuscript as a, um, a permanent loan to the Library of Congress so that musicians of the world could get to see it. I have one copy here, <laughs> but it, it's really a beautiful, beautiful work. It's completed in one movement. It's in C minor and it's lovely, just lovely. Do you know if there are any recordings of this work available? Yes, there is. This is a happy, sad story. One of my students, Dr. Scott Beard, went all the way and got his doctorate. And I helped him write his doctorate thesis on Concerto Symphony. And as part of his program, he did a, a recording of Lesson System Pieces. And I have it in the other room. Also, there's another, there's another pianist that Ilsa said she approved of, and he recorded it also. So there are two recordings of the work available. Great. We'll, ha we'll have to see if we can find it and make it available to our listeners. What are some of your favorite memories as a teacher? As I said, Scott went all the way. So unfortunately, he died this past year. An early death, which is sad because he was so gifted. My students keep in touch with me. I just got, I just got this from one of my students. David was with me from the time he was six years old until the time he graduated high school. And his dream was always to get a grand piano. This is his first grand piano. He's so excited. And he's about 30 years old again. Great. How do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? There's more than one. One of them is that solo repertoire is not all there is. I, I've taught ensemble work. Alexander Pescado has composed some marvelous concertos for, for younger, younger students, and I've taught them all, all of them. In fact, he even wrote one dedicated to my husband and me, his concerto number seven, he called the anniversary concerto. He was visiting us at that time, and he said, I think I'm going to compose a piece for you. I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, what key, what's your favorite key? I said, E flat. I don't know why I said that. And then he started playing, he just started playing out of nowhere. And the next thing I know, my husband and I are in the kitchen dancing. It was their 50th wedding anniversary. He called it the anniversary concerto. It's, it's really beautiful. So um, that's one thing. So that's one thing. I believe in ensemble, everything. I, I've got to have technique, I've got to have theory, I've got to have duo concertos and ensemble work. In addition to that, my main, my main philosophy is there is no deadline on a dream. If you dream it and you really want to do it, and you work hard at it, you can do it. When I turned 70, I bought myself that harp over there. Because that was something I always wanted to do. I decided I was old enough to do it. So there is no deadline on a dream. Hmm. How, how long did you 
take lessons on harp for, or are you still playing the harp? I studied, I lived in Florida, I had a wonderful teacher, Jan Jennings, and I went to her every week for the harp. And she taught me great things, great things. I'm willing, when I moved to Georgia, I haven't had a teacher yet, but I work with the Atlanta Harp, Atlanta harp Store, and they have a bunch of podcasts once a month. They have teachers on, and you can ask them questions and things like that, and play along with them. But that's what I'm doing now. Well, the heart. Thank you for sharing that. That's very exciting. Do you have any books about music or teaching that you can recommend? Yes, my own. <laughs> I have over fifty books that I've written about teaching music, about music. I have a series on composers. There are five books in the composer series. There are four books in the uh, form, form analysis series. There are 10 books in the theory series. And all of my students have my books. And there are some teachers that have my books as well. And I'm happy to share them with any teacher that wants to have them. Oh, and I have a whole series of what I call mental gymnastics, which are puzzles, theory puzzles. They have to figure out by not touching the camera. Now, where can our listeners go in order to find your books? Is there a specific website or publisher? I publish them and you go to my email, your piano studio and me.com. Or call me. All right. Great. Thank you for that. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? I do. I do. I love to cook. I love gourmet cooking, and I also love sewing and embroidery, things like that. I wonder if you see any similarities between your love for cooking and um, sewing and embroidery um, with piano. I do because it's all things that you have to think about, and that's important to me. To figure, to figure it out, to figure out exactly how to do it. The, there's one embroidery project that I did that I had to learn about embroidery. I had to learn about three different processes I had to learn with three processes that I had to learn how to do. And that project took me almost a year to do. Cut work is one of them. I have a whole tablecloth that I did on cut work. It's an ancient art, ancient thing that I really want to learn how to do. Mm. Stuff like that. Mm. Well, um, we are approaching the end of our conversation, and I just wonder, given your very long and rich career and life in music, if you have any advice for our listeners who might be just starting out in their career, how can someone be successful as a musician in today's world? That's, that's a good question. Well. They have, to, they have to be able to know a lot about music. They have to know music history. They have to, because the students have to know if they're playing the piece by Beethoven, they have to know who Beethoven was about his life. There's so much they have to do. Technique and theory. They've got to learn all this stuff and make sure that they impart it in a level for each student. That's what's important. You can't just give a, a level 10 from one book to a student that can only do a level three. I have 
two sins that are, one of them is 95% blind and the other is 70% blind. <laughs> it's genetic because the father is blind. And these kids are just fine in music theory and, and technique. They really are. All this is so important. I, I don't see that one is less important than the other. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if this follow-up question will open up a whole new can of worms, but how do you teach someone who is um, significantly visually impaired? You put your hand on top of theirs and show them how. One of the most important things is the wrist drop. And a lot of students have that they're, they're rigid, but if you show them how to do that, then you just have their hand on top of yours. That's the way I taught the keys to them also because they had to feel the difference between the two black keys and the three black keys. And where the white keys are located, they had to feel it because the oldest students could not see it. And that is, that really works. Mm. Do you spend a lot of time doing um, rote teaching or do you use um, mm -hmm. music? Do you use Braille music? I don't need Braille. They don't need Braille yet. They will eventually. I don't believe in right teaching. I want to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I, I teach that way, but not right. I see. Well, Judith, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you for sharing your stories with me and with our listeners. Thank you for sharing your rich history with us. And thank you for your life of dedication to music, to music history and music theory as well. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Thank you. You too.